When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's the Wonky Show. Strikes are on across the sector. How should universities mitigate the impact? Uh, there's a new briefing out on digital delivery from UUK. We'll try and work out if Blended is working. Uh, there's new figures on student transfers and there's finalised plans for teacher training. Has the government listened? It's all coming up. The challenge is that that's, there's many different types of students out there and what, what works for some students doesn't work so well for others. So, you know, we know that our, our model at the OU works really well for students with declared disabilities. You know, 30,000 of our 190,000 students have a declared disability. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us jingle the bells of HE policy this week, three fantastic guests. Uh, in Milton Keynes, Tim Blackman is Vice-Chancellor at the Open University. Tim, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week was introducing Caroline Wesley from uh, from Mental Health Innovations, the digital mental health charity, to speak at the OU staff conference on mental health and wellbeing this week. Caroline talked about Shout, which is a, a service we're commissioning for all our staff and students based on free-to-use texting for help and advice and 24-7 expert support on mental health and mental well-being. It's an incredible model and we're um, they're a great partner for us to have on board. Excellent. Sounds really interesting. We'll have a look at that. Uh, and in Oxfordshire, Emily McIntosh, his Director of Learning, Teaching and Student Experience at the University of Middlesex. Emily, your highlight of the week. Please. Not as good as Tim's, I'm afraid, but um, I went to see the Blenheim Light Show yesterday evening, but that's nothing in comparison with the Middlesex Christmas tree, which I hope to be able to see next week. Very festive. And somewhere in the southwest, David Kernahan is an associate editor here at Wonky. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Well, I think the news that we're going to be looking at consultations on the TEF and on the B3 conditions in the new year, rather than at the end of this term, has made December feel a lot more relaxed for me. It just depends whether or not we get the white paper in it. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, interesting. Now, uh, we start this week with uh, industrial action. Staff at 58 universities have walked out this week, and OFS has said that students could get refunds as a result. DK, take us through it. So this is industrial action, which includes strikes and actions short of a strike uh, taking place over three days until Friday. This is the usual, what they call the four fights, which is on pensions, pay, workload and precarity. In all, there are 33 institutions that are seeing strike action on pay and pension. 21 are on pay only, four are on pensions only. And there's also six institutions where there's actions short of strike uh, taking place over the whole of December, and that's on pay. Uh, the um, UCU and the Employers Association, UCIA, have uh, uh, both been hit in the uh, press releases, depending on who you believe the strike has either been a roaring success or a bit of a damp squib. Certainly, um, looking at my social media and talking to academics, I know um, there is a, a, a lot of people out there and even more people making the strike memes. Um, I believe my colleague Will 
it's his only his second week he's been out um, on the picket lines at the University of Bristol. And he so- has. So uh, before you carry on, DK, let's have a quick listen. To boil it down into its essentials, we have five, we have five issues, five grievances that we're striking about today. Five grievances, five issues that we want employers and the employers who represent us and the bodies that negotiate these things um, to take meaningful action on. The first issue is that of pensions. Not necessarily the most important, but it's a separate dispute, and that's over our USS pensions, which is the main pension scheme for colleagues, for example, at Bristol here who are on a grade J and above, so that would be a starting lecturer grade, to put it in more real terms. And UC has been in dispute and taken action three times now over what we consider our employers' failure, really, to defend the interests of their staff when it comes to that USS pension. Why do we think they're not defending our interests? Because we think that the rationale behind the cuts to our members' pensions, which are coming if these benefit proposals are accepted, are unnecessary because the deficit that is projected by USS and their trustees and their management is not a deficit that reflects actually the strength of the scheme. And that was a view up until recently that employers tentatively were coming round to. Um, there was a lot of support for what's called the JET proposals, which was the attempt after the, the last big USS strike in 2018. There has been a subsequent strike, but the last big successful strike in 2018, where we got employers the last time to take back their benefit proposals, to really focus on the scheme's valuation. And work was progressing relatively nicely, not as quickly as UCU would like. But in recent times, for example, the end of August this year, the employers, uh, the employers have rode back from that and said, actually, we do accept the deficit to a large extent, and that's what's driving uh, the cuts to USS pensions in terms of the benefits. And we don't think that employers really should be should be rowing back on what was their position just before the end of August. We said a lot more about that, but it's important to recognise that we're not just striking about pensions, we're also striking about our four fights, the widespread use of precarious contracts in higher education, uh, pay inequality, particularly gender and ethnicity, uh, pay devaluation, the fact that we continue not to have a decent pay rise to reflect increasing costs, and also, and critically, I think, for a lot of higher education staff, the issue of workload. Workload is, not to put define a point on it, ridiculous in higher education. You are asked to do more for less, but you're constantly asked to do more and more and more for the same or indeed less. And we really want employers to start meaningfully saying, look, we need an agreement around workload, we need an agreement about what is a reasonable workload, and we need means for institutions represented by UCIA, that's the body that negotiates on areas like workload, um, to be kept to those standards. Thank you. So a big question that has arisen as a result of the strike action is uh, the complexities over the ownership of recorded lectures and other teaching materials, especially during the pandemic. A lot of lecture materials were recorded so students could um, catch up on lectures where they were able. But there is a suspicion among some staff that these recordings are going to be used against their will in order to keep teaching students during the strike. I should also add that Michelle Donnellan has once again weighed in and said that students should be compensated if uh, their learning is affected by strike action. Tim, what's uh, what's your assessment of uh, the, the uh, dispute so far? Um, well, look, Going on strike and working to rule is a really big step um, for some of our staff to take. And I have no doubt about the strength of feeling, um, even though many of the ballots, of course, failed to get past the 50% uh, turnout threshold. But it's not in AVC's interest to have colleagues who 
who don't feel paid well and paid fairly and who can't look forward to a good pension. Um, but, you know, the overall picture is is that pay in universities compares pretty well with the rest of the economy and, and the USS pension, even with these reforms, compares very well with its 21% employer contribution on top of pay. So so I really regret the situation that we're in with the unions and, and, and I'm keen for the unions to get involved in the many things there still are to negotiate. The, the pay dispute is about um, this year's pay settlement, the 1.5% increase to base pay. Many many colleagues, of course, get their increments as well. So 5% for, for, for many in the sector, um, taking those increments into account. Um, and, and we're heading for the 2022 pay negotiations now, which should should begin in March, and and that's where I'd like to see us focusing. Um, the the pay deal this year is water under the bridge, but there's plenty to talk about in terms of pay negotiations early in the new year. Um, the the pension, um, I mean, both USS and and UUK have agreed a package of reforms to keep the pension still among the best pension schemes in the country, uh, while moving to a scheme that, that's in a sustainable position for the future, keeping the contributions at a level that, that are affordable for employers and employees. And and there is some reform needed and some reduction in benefits as a result of that. It's, it, it's tricky to generalise on what they are. We're in a consultation period now with members of the scheme and, and the USS website has a mod- modeller on it where you can, you can look at the impact. But this is all about uh, keeping a a good pension scheme, but one that's sustainable and affordable. Emily, uh, well, you know, one of the things that's happened this week, partly off the back of the Michelle Donnellan um, intervention, is OFS has kind of come out and reiterated its view on mitigations, you know, making up for anything that's lost. And, and I guess, you know, five years ago, the, 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 the playbook here was universities just didn't assess on the stuff you hadn't been taught on. But it's not that simple these days, no, is it? No, it's a very murky situation, I think, in terms of um, copyright and intellectual property. Um, so I'm quite interested in this idea of the interpretation of the word performance when it comes to um, digital artefacts that have been created by teaching. Um, and I think there's a difference between pre-recorded material um, versus recordings of synchronous or live activities. And I think there's really interesting looking at the dynamics here. Um, I also think students obviously have their own right to their own performance in live situations, uh, such as seminars and studios and labs. So in in terms of mitigations, it really depends what type of content um, universities might release to to students um, in the event of strike action. Um, So there is this one thing around um, who owns copyright. I think most universities have clauses in employment contracts around universities and institutions owning copyright. But there is this strange exemption around audio um, and and, uh, academic colleagues owning intellectual property. So I think it's probably best to err on the side of caution here and seek relevant permission to distribute content. But for me, that also brings into into play some considerations about what sound pedagogy here. Um, we know that students uh, are using digital recordings for all sorts of, of, of things to support their learning. Um, if colleagues feel comfortable releasing material pre-strike um, and they own the intellectual property, um, then that's absolutely fine and can help their students to, to catch up or keep up whilst strike action is happening. On the other hand, though, um, if we're reusing old recordings, there's got to be something said there about the currency of that material and certainly what types of recordings are are released. And if a university releases 
um, pre-recorded material that's that's you know tantamount to more transmission teaching um, I still don't think it fully mitigates against that lost contact time that we know all students crave I think it's important to say that nobody willingly wants to harm student learning here I'm sure um, and there is that question around um, whether or not colleagues feel comfortable um, conducting online learning uh, whilst they are striking but I think for me any online live situation is the same as any on-campus in-person activity so I think they need to be careful there, and that's not interesting. Interesting stuff, D- D- DK. Part part of this obviously relates to this wider question that forms part of the UCU case, which is about workload. What's your perception of where the kind of you know you've written on the site before about workload modelling? Where 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 is this? Where's the dispute at in terms of workload? So um, we've never really had accurate workload models of um, what staff actually spend their days and indeed their evenings and weekends actually um, doing as an academic. We've never really had a division between the things that people would claim is legitimately part of their uh, current job that they're paid for and the stuff that's just part and parcel of being an academic. Academics, and I know I... I know a lot of academics i've lived with various academics they do a ridiculous amount of work um a lot um a lot of this is outside of what you would call the working hours but um it is difficult to draw a line between um thinking about your research results while walking the dog on a sunday morning and thinking about your research results in the office on monday morning um it is um i mean some people describe it as a lifestyle which i think is especially unhealthy um, there was um, um, a report published by OFS this week on track the, the transparent approach to costing. That's widely thought of as a workload model. It's only accurate enough to make um, a general picture of the costs of having certain activities in universities. It's not like an absolutely perfect model of what academics do. Um, and that's also um, a part of this dispute in that people think that that um, what's reported on track is the entirety of what universities think that they do. Um, slightly controversially, I think the problem here is with the wider conceptualization of what academics feel that they need to do in order to be an academic. And although uh, there's stuff that um, managers and institutional structures can do to sensibly reduce workload, um, especially on individual academics that are ridiculously overloaded, um, there is also a lot of work that academics themselves need to do about uh, making sure they have um, a reasonable limit on the amount of stuff they take on and the amount of work that they decide to and do not decide to do good yes now let's see who's been blogging for us this week i'm gareth crossman i'm head of policy and communications at qaa and i have written a piece for wonky along with professor michael draper at swansea university which looks at the new provisions criminalizing essay mills that have been introduced in the skills and post 16 education act bill currently going through parliament um it's an analysis of the provisions uh looks at the way the bill's structured so that uh, essay mills won't be able to rely on disclaimers looks at some of the protections that are available to avoid criminalizing students and legitimate services and then really looks at what does all this mean what's the real impact going to be of the introduction of legislation to criminalize smls and we conclude really the impact is going to be less in the courts and more in the marketing but it will 
in all provide a very valuable tool in combating SAMLs. Now, meanwhile this week, both Universities UK and JISC have published material on online and blended learning, and ONS had new figures on what students are experiencing. Tim, take us through it. Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, interesting report uh, concluding, I think, that um, technology uh, has quite a lot to offer in terms of a blended model uh, for what we at the OU call the, the bricks and mortar part of the sector. Um, and of course, at the Open University, we we already knew that. Um, we, we have long provided our courses uh, digitally uh, alongside um, small group tuition with our associate lecturers. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to see uh, how lessons accelerated during the COVID period. And, you know, a lot of testing and learning was done in, in a remarkably agile way. And we touched on workloads, of course, a little earlier. And, and there's no doubt this added considerably to the, the workload issues that the sector has but there's there's some good learning that's come out of it um we, we've tried to contribute from from the ou end i mean early on in the covid crisis we we put up uh, a couple of short courses on online teaching on open learn our open learn platform and, and on future learn um but i guess we we spectate on this a little bit from the ou because because we do this very differently we, we design for online from scratch and it's the course design plus the group tuition that makes our model um i think you know really good um but um I guess the, the the challenge is that that there's many different types of student out there, and what what works for some students doesn't work so well for others. So, you know, we know that our our model at the OU works really well for students with declared disabilities. You know, thirty thousand of our one hundred and ninety thousand students have a declared disability. Um, also, digital can be great for giving students who are less confident feedback that they've really managed to understand a topic before they move on to the next one. Because you can do, you know, online quizzes, you can keep doing them until you get the topic, etc. Um, and then, of course, the reach of, of digital learning is immense. Um, you know, we, we've shown that in the OU in terms of our presence in every parliamentary constituency across the country, we have students. So um, I think I think the key point is that um, you can't just sort of move face-to-face teaching online. It's got to be designed. The pedagogy has got to be digital pedagogy that informs it. Um, but I think uh, we're no longer seeing that that sort of difference between the entirely digital uh, part of the sector, although we still in normal times do some face-to-face tutorials at the OU, but it's not really a distinction now between the, the bricks and mortar, the face-to-face sector and the, and and online, it, it's hybrid and uh, online. And I, I think we're, you know, we're still learning in the sector how to do good hybrid. Um, but there's no doubt that as the digitalization of society just keeps on plowing forward, um, we owe to our students uh, that, that, uh, that a big part of their learning is learning with digital tools because that's what it's going to be like in the workplace. Emily, uh, you know, if, if last year was a kind of year zero, which was really a kind of emergency kind of delivery mode, and this year is kind of year one of a sort of uh, a new approach, a blended approach or whatever the, you know, whatever the chunk of text says on the front page of the website, is it working? Do we know if it's working yet? And, and if not, when, when will we know? Wow, good question. I, I, I think... There is definitely a difference between emergency remote, which is what was the hallmark, I suppose, of 2020, and now um, emergency blended um, with more live streaming into on-campus in-person sessions. Um, I think it's still a bit early to say whether it's working, um, given that um, COVID is still very much with us. 
we're still very much in the pandemic, not post-pandemic. And I think we're looking for indicators of what's working, given that there are still differences of opinion about the nature of the blend now that we have uh, more access to on-campus, in-person teaching than than we did. Um, and the impact of, of those things on independent study hours as well. Um, I think there's no doubt at all that students have benefited from some of those um, digital experiences, um, uh, particularly um, using recordings to um, approach um, this kind of... Uh, looking at this concept of community, um, what I'm calling sick day asynchronous, where students may um, use digital um, recordings to kind of um, go back and, and um, recap on their learning, manage their learning around other commitments, um, particularly with um, mental ill health and well-being at, at hand as well, using digital as revision aids, but also um online lectures and the opportunity for them to be more interactive, I suppose, with more chat functions. I think that's useful, but we're still really learning. And I think um, there's now been this introduction of the term high flex into, into the, the sector narrative. Um, and I think there's definitely a difference between live streaming students into an on-campus classroom and then um, a hybrid approach, which is far more experiential. And I think what I've been considering really is this difference between um, parity of experience of those that are joining in the classroom and those that are joining um, in a live stream format um, and um, that kind of um, no material difference or um, uh, equity of opportunity. So I think there's still much to be worked through. Interesting. D- D- DK, you know, there's, there is some data floating around, isn't there? Although it's not very comprehensive and doesn't, and isn't particularly clear what what do we do we do we know anything so far about you know whether students are experiencing the right thing whether it's impacting their confidence or their attainment what do we know um we don't as emily puts it we don't really know very much as of yet this is still stuff that we are uh, gathering data on we're understanding all we really have at this point is anecdotes and um i've been fascinated by a couple of conversations with people i've had today there was one instance i was hearing about a um mixed mode uh, graduation uh, ceremony in which they did all of the uh, um in campus students uh first of all and then they moved to doing online graduations and at that point the in campus students felt it was fine for them to leave and they had to have quite um a senior member of staff tell them actually no that's a bit off really you can't do that I've also been finding out a lot about um, students really want to go and sit in the library and work. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're um, watching a live stream of a lecture that is happening in the next building along. They really like being in the library and learning. I think a lot of this stuff comes down to the idea of the performance of higher education and being a higher education student. I mean, students go to lectures sometimes, they miss them other times, they hang out in the library, they look at books, they do all these things that you expect students to do. And even though there are technological approaches that might even be of of um, more benefit to students, and for some students, these approaches actually make participation in higher education uh, possible, of course. Um, students still want to feel like that they are doing the traditional, the, uh, uh, the passed down experience of higher education by doing all these in-person stuff. I mean, like you, I was uh, tickled to spot that there are 25% of students in the ONS survey that claim that they didn't get a single hour of in-person teaching during a particular week in November. Now that we don't yet know 
what's going on there or why that is. My suspicion is they might have been asked during reading week and there might not have been anything scheduled that week because that was their week to catch up on assessments and reading and all the rest of it. But it still it still highlights the fact that the experience is incredibly patchy. The other thing that comes up on this topic is the support offered to staff. There was a great um, GISC report. They've been doing a lot of survey work on the um, impact of the pandemic and the um, the safety public health uh, measures on the workload again going back to workload of academic staff and I mean one of the things that comes out of that strongly and comes out of other conversations I've had it's really really hard to run an in-person event and simultaneously run an online event and bring them together it's a serious skill it's something that the likes of the open university spend a lot of time teaching academic staff how to do online learning I don't know if there's any center of excellence that can teach people how to do hybrid learning at the same time I only know it from um running events and also running the Twitter feed. And that's hard enough, quite frankly. So um, academics really need support on this. It does seem like they're getting it, but I really hope it's the right support and it's support that's making their jobs easier rather than more complex. Tim, I mean, there aren't many vice chancellors I could ask this question to, but I can with you uh, because it's not really much of a change for you. But given this is such a kind of big change for lots of universities, is it reasonable to kind of have a, a kind of evaluation point of the end of the year when it's all over, when all the results are in and when the NSS results are in? Don't we? Doesn't there need to be other moments where people are kind of stopping, taking a step back, looking at all the student feedback and saying, well, we might need to adjust? Well, it, one of the advantages of digital learning, whether as part of a blended model or entirely digital, is is that you can get instant, near instant feedback. And that's something that we work with at the OU. Uh, we're quite advanced with our learning analytics to pick up patterns of student behaviour, uh, student feedback um, in presentation, as we call it, while we're actually presenting the module. Um, so I think it is it is very 20th century to, to do these big annual reviews um, when we need to move into the 21st century and have more instant feedback and inst- instant near instant response to that feedback. And that's certainly uh, where we're moving at, at the OU. So that's one of the advantages of uh, of digital education is the ability to do that. Excellent. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. If you were to pitch up at an English university in the middle of the 19th century um, and ask to see the research facilities, you would be very disappointed because there, there were none. Firstly, the universities were mostly concerned with uh, non-experimental sciences, so you, you wouldn't be shown to any great laboratories. There were some laboratories the students were allowed to, to do something. But original research was not, even in the humanities, something that they thought was important. So much so that if you go to the work of Cardinal Newman, his um, very important lectures, uh, on the idea of the university, he's quite dismissive of the idea of generating uh, um, new knowledge. Uh, if the object of a university was scientific and philosophical discover- discovery, I do not see why a university should have students. He's very clear that it's not any of their business. And, and certainly there are plenty of examples, and, and Oxford does very well at coming up with these examples, of why universities uh, shouldn't do research, they shouldn't do science, this isn't their business. Uh, discovery of knowledge is, is nothing much to do with them. So one of the great reformers of the University of Oxford is uh, the Master of Balliol, Benjamin Jowett. Um, and he's this great idea uh, that he, he reforms all sorts of things at university. He's hated by some conservatives, but one of the things he's very clear on is that re- you know research is 
is not the kind of thing that his university should be doing because it threatened the whole tutorial and examination system which was making Oxford into the highest of high school for boys. So for him, it was a really bad thing and he came up with this idea, someone talking to him, um, research, the master exclaimed, research, he said, a mere excuse for idleness. It has never achieved and will never achieve results of the slightest value. So this is the head of Balliol, uh, very clear that, that this, is, this is not something that should happen. Clearly, there's a, an ongoing movement. There's what you get is this interaction between the new universities, places like Manchester, who start to borrow the apparatus of the research university, which is developed in the US and developed from Germany, and they work out that actually useful knowledge is a useful to the locale, but actually is generating new things. So they do, both do a, a, what we might think of as applied, but also basic research. So you start to get a development. Um, Cambridge sets up the Cavendish Laboratory in 1874 and gets an extraordinary range of people who, who come. Nobel Prizes developed very quickly. Uh, you know, the fundamentals of the universe are understood by people at Cambridge. Uh, this idea that we should advance knowledge is, is now seen as something they sh uh, that we should get on to do. Um, there's an association with... Um, uh, Lord Kelvin, who's at Glasgow University for an extraordinary amount of time, uh, but this is a man who um, perfects underwater cables, who does temperature, who does all sorts of things, you know, you know polyglot of, of thinking about what a university should be doing, discovering things. But uh, in other places, this is still seen as, as definitely a, a bad idea, and it only really um, finally gets cemented after the First World War when the useful knowledge that universities have contributed towards the war is actually seen by both government and by society as something that is, is worth reflecting. And it certainly wins the argument finally in Oxford that you know university research is the kind of thing that they should be doing and they start to set up the major facilities that they have uh, and, it, and it really kicks on from there. Hi there, it's Debbie from the team and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new event we have coming up early next year. Higher education can be tricky to navigate. There's loads of different sector organisations and representative bodies with multiple policy agendas and half the time they all sound like they're speaking a different language. At Making Sense of Higher Education on the 14th of February in London, we'll take you on a team wonky guided tour of higher education. We'll be diving deep into the history, culture and politics of our sector and equipping you with the insight and tools you need to navigate the choppy waters of life in universities. Because the more we understand about where we've come from and where we are, the better the decisions we'll make about where we should go. And we think everyone in higher education should be part of that conversation. So, whether you're early in your higher education career, taking on a new role in responsibilities, or even joining a university board of governors, join us for Making Sense of Higher Education in February. To find out more, go to www.wonky.com forward slash events. Now, next up, the Office for Students has published new figures on transfers. DK, what did we learn when we gazed through the transfer window? So this was, um, it almost feels like a kind of relic of another time, around about uh, 2017, 2016, when uh, the Higher Education and Research Bill was going through Parliament. Uh, Joe Johnson, who was Minister at the time, was making a lot of noise about supporting students who transfer between courses either in the same university or at completely different universities during their studies. He was really keen that this became a part of what was expected. It um, I mean, after all, it's really common in the US and it means that students get to experience different universities and um, benefit from different specialisms. It doesn't really happen because it's really hard to do. 
and we got um, a release of what is still labelled experimental um, data from the Office for Students, which suggests it doesn't happen very often. We're talking 4.4% of all students in 2018-19 restarted the course they're on, um, which is a lot bigger than the the, uh, uh, figures of students who went to a different course. We're looking there round about 2%-ish for most groups. Um, An aspect of this that uh, fascinated me is that students from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds are more likely to go on to a new course with no credit. Uh, So just completely starting a new um, course again, whereas students from better off backgrounds tend to be able to take credit with them, even if they go to a different university. I think what that is showing is a kind of uh, system literacy. If you understand the way higher education works and you understand the way that transfers are are possible, then it's a lot easier to do it in a way that um, benefits you. I mean, all all of this is incredibly timely with the ongoing passage of the Skills and Post-16 Education Bill and the expected legislation after that that's going to bring in the lifelong learning entitlement. That's explicitly based on the kind of um, modular breakdown of provision, which is something that the, the, the Open University has be, always been a strong advocate of in the UK. But if that is going to work on a system level we need to get better at credit transfer and that's and that's not just the frameworks that's the student uh facing advice as well now tim let let me just put put a question to you with my kind of crayon brain now obviously transfers is a kind of system design issue the student can take their voucher somewhere else universities will be more responsive as a result but if you're a commuter student you're likely to be at your local uni if you're away from home, you've got to rent accommodation and sign a contract so early that you don't ever leave. And if you're a distance learning student, you're a distance learning student. So who on earth are student transfers for? So I think it's really important not to generalise too much about um, students in the sector. There are many different kinds of, of students with different needs, different ambitions. Um, and, you know, we can easily slip into just assuming we're talking about the the young full-time residential students when, of course, most of our students at the OU are mature students, adult learners. Um, combining study with work, study with childcare, childcare and so on. I mean, we've got a good model for credit transfer at the OU. So we, we see ourselves as playing a role in the sector in this regard. Um, we've long, long accepted credit transfer at some scale. Last year, uh, around 6,000 of our students, our new students transferred in with, with credit. Um, but it's a very resource intensive exercise doing the mapping that's necessary, easier for some subjects and um, professions than others. Um, but uh, we, we've got our open degree and open certificate and diploma, which um, is particularly good for being flexible in accepting credit. So there, there, there has to be an, an institutional commitment to doing this. But at a sector level, it's, it's very hard because it doesn't easily sit with institutional autonomy, for example. I think this is becoming really urgent. There is a massive lag in the data. So the 2018-19 data has only just been released. This is only the second report of of its kind that we've had. Um, And we don't have enough data to contextualise what's going on here. So what we know is that different types of students are um, 
looking for increased mobility, whatever it is that we, we describe mobility as. And the government is clearly wanting increased mobility within the sector with a modular, flexible focus on, on lifelong and multi-provider approaches. Um, but if we were to really implement that around the lifelong learning entitlement, the, the data and the con- contextualization of that data is really key. Um, I think it's important not to conflate those two issues that we're seeing here around those students who fail and finish uh, their original course and then restart another, either at their original provider or at another provider. And those students who decide to vote with their feet and um, usually those who are transferring credits, um, more advantaged students who are, as, as DK said, system, you know, looking at the system literacy and, and um, making a, a choice to transfer provider and course. I think we've always had this negotiation between course and provider. Um, and what I would really like to know is what are the intersectional factors here? We talked about commuter students and uh, students going to their local university, although we know at Middlesex, some of our students commute over two and a half hours each way. Um, so that means on our previous conversation, yeah, um, on, going back to our previous conversation, uh, on-campus in-person interaction has got to be uh, pretty stellar for a student to, to decide to make that commitment to, to travel, particularly if their commute isn't a productive one. They've got two or three changes taking a bus and a tube. So I think there are geographical phenomena going on here. The idea of what a local university looks like as well. So uh, I think it's urgent now that we try and um, explore uh, what's going on here and looking at uh, students maybe um, with uh, understanding for institutions to perhaps uh, interview students who are exiting or, or capturing data in a different way. DK, this is another data set, isn't it, where there's a lot of quan and not nearly enough qual? Uh, that same could be said for a lot of the data sets we're using at the moment. Um, unfortunately, um, we're not very good. I don't know of any systemic attempt to look at the experiences of students who transfer. I know there's some papers in the literature that do like a small number of case studies, but what I would love to see is a kind of um, deep textual analysis of survey responses type stuff. Um, as um, both speakers have uh, uh, pointed out, students decide to change courses or to res- start a different course or to repeat the course from the start again for a number of different reasons. It could be due to an overly ambitious burden of a- academic challenge. It could be for personal or social reasons. It could be because they're just bored and they want to do something else like I was when when I um, decided after doing the first year of pharmacy that it really was not for me and I'd much rather do English literature and music. Uh, So we don't really capture those experiences. Um, It would be good if there was some kind of national mechanism to do that. I know that um, if a student leaves a course, there is space in SLC data for the provider to leave um, a reason for that. I've never seen that data analysed, but it would be a great bit of administrative data to play with if anybody can convince that SLC to give them access to it. In the same way, it would be possible for um, SLC to co- to collect data on the reasons behind uh, course uh, changes, and that would be a really interesting data set and something that would tell us a lot here about um, uh, about what is going on. The other part of this equation is understanding um, demand. It was, I mean, back in the day, it was Joe Johnston's conjecture that there were more. T- uh, um, there were more students that actually would change course or change university if they knew how. I've never been convinced, as I think it was 
Tim said earlier in the, 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 um, the discussion that there is this massive untapped gap of students that w- want to change course and that perhaps is something that could be picked up in something like a, um, a redesigned national student survey which is an, um, another uh, consultation that we're still waiting for from the Office for Students. So that's about it for this week. Remember, to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today, you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Emily, Tim, DK, Mike, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.